We're here today with another edition of Live at the Grafton, and our guest today is Larry Rand. Everybody give Larry a big hand. And Larry's gonna perform a couple songs for us, and I'll come back and we'll talk a little bit about his music. All right, I'm gonna start with my oldest song, also my best known. This is just my up-tempo folk song, the one I use to start the show. It's my up-tempo folk song, the kind every folk singer ought to know. The kind that sounds vaguely patriotic and makes you want to sing along. The white folk song with the black line around it, a generic up-tempo folk song. This is the middle of my up-tempo folk song. It's called the second verse. You've got to sing it warm and tender to make it sound different from the first. This is where I smile at all the people just to see who's around. And if I sing the second verse softly, the crowd usually quiets down. This is the bridge and it's really exciting. It has a different blend. The purpose of the bridge is to get from the middle to the beginning of the end of this my up-tempo folk song. The end is drawing near. And by now you're so doggone excited, you want to stand right up and cheer and say hooray for the flag of our country. May it wave forever strong. But you see, in reality, this was just my up-tempo folk song. Here's my newest song. by Kim Jong-un. Korea, Korea, led by Kim Jong-un. Tell me why the sourpuss, buddy, you're no fun. Korea, Korea, what did you test last June? Korea, Korea, what did you test last June? All the cows and the chickens have started barbecuing. I got a bomb and missiles, you got a word that stings. You 
got a bomb and missile You got a word that stings And if the bomb goes off, Kim You won't have anything Korea, Korea Won't you stop it, please Korea, Korea won't you stop it, please? Quit trying to make tempura out of the Japanese. I love Korea with all those swinging chops. I love Korea with all the swinging chops. I'm talking Chip Korea. He really bim bim bops. Korea, Korea. Led by Kim Jong un. Korea, Korea. Led by Kim Jong un. Tell me why the sour puss. Buddy, you're no fun. Thank you. Well, uh, Larry, I'd like to go back from your most recent song to when you first were... Well, what, what made you kind of decide to even... You remember your first song you wrote? What was it that got you thinking about writing songs in the first place? I, my first song, it was, I really detested my seventh grade teacher, <laughs> uh, whose name was Elsie C. Kalur. <laughs> and she was one of those teachers who wanted people to like her. And I just wanted to show up and learn something and go home. I didn't want to get into that kind of stuff. <laughs> And so Elsie and I did not get along. And so I wrote a song to the tune of Smokey the Bear called Elsie the Cow. And I showed up to class one day with this written down on a piece of paper. And I started singing it for the class and they started laughing. And then they started laughing a lot. And the reason they were laughing a lot was that Elsie was in the doorway listening to me. And she's copped this attitude and said, oh, don't mind me, just go ahead and sing your song. And I said, oh, okay, great. And it was a wicked song. <laughs> and I sang the whole thing and the, and the class just fell out. And, and it made a big impression on me, you know? It was like, oh, these funny songs seem to, to go over. And then I didn't do anything else after that until freshman year, of, of high school, uh, we were playing at a hootenanny, and, and with, I had a tenor guitar. Well, what, what exactly does it mean to play at a hootenanny? Well, hootenannies were, were kind of like um, open mics, for lack of a better uh, term, where people would just trade off songs and get together and, and exchange uh, tunes. So I was doing... 
Walk Right In was a big hit right, right about then. I can't think of the name of the group that, that did it. But, you know, Walk Right In, Set Right Down. And I transposed, accidentally really, I transposed uh, the, the lines to the verses and I sang uh, 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 something like, Buddy, let your hair hang down. And of course, men in those days didn't wear long hair. And it got a big laugh. And so when it got a big laugh, I kept it. And I did it again when I repeated the, the verse and it got another laugh. And I don't know if it reminded me of my Elsie the Cow song or what, but I thought, you know, I'm not the world's greatest guitarist, I'm not the world's greatest singer, and in those days, I was 13 years old, God knows what was gonna come out when I opened my mouth, because my voice was changing. And so I thought, well, maybe I could write some funny stuff or find some funny stuff and, and do, do that instead of trying to be serious on stage. That stuff like, you know, a man with long hair obviously is not a necessarily a humorous image anymore. Right, so, right. Are there absolutely. other stuff you've written about over the years that just it was humorous at the time, but now people wouldn't, uh, you know, short of like just not understanding the context, but actually the, the cultures change where it wouldn't be yeah, funny. Yeah, actually, I had a very interesting experience mm -hmm. with, um, I had a song called Skokie Blues. And now I lived in Skokie when I went to high school and Skokie was the funny suburb. It was like Brooklyn. If a Borscht Belt comedian mentioned Brooklyn in New York City, you got to laugh right away. Brooklyn, there was just something funny about Brooklyn. Now it's all hipster, but in those days it was just funny for some reason. Well, Skokie was that way. It was just like a humorous suburb. Everybody thought Skokie was kind of fun. And so I wrote Skokie Blues just as, as uh, you know, a kid who was like fed up with living there, you know. And, and uh, it actually got fairly popular and got played on the Midnight Special and on WXRT even. And uh, all of a sudden a Nazi march uh, in Skokie took place. And people started coming up to me after my shows, after I sang Skokie Blues, and, and saying things like, hey, way to put down those so-and-so Jews, man. And of course, I'm Jewish. And, and you know, I was like, no, 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 that's not what that song is about. I'm not putting them down, you know? And then, of course, Jewish people would come up to me and say, you can't sing that. That, that, that Skokie now, it, it, it has meaning and everything. It, it's not what it used to be, you know? And finally, you know, I, I sang it at, at a, a, a political fundraiser for the late great Abner Mikva when he was running for Congress. Wonderful guy and running in a really tough district. I remember that day I said, well, boy, I, I hope you're going to win, Abner. And he said, oh, this one's going to be relatively easy. I expect us to win by four or five hundred votes <laughs> <laughs> in an entire congressional district. So I did the song there, and I thought I was going to be tarred and feathered for singing that song. This, and and it's, it's a totally innocuous song, you know, if you think of Skokie as the funny suburb. And it's, and, but that Skokie had gone away and was replaced by something with, fraught with meaning. So, so yeah, you know, it's a, humor is a moving target. 
Feel, should we should we play it? Is it is it maybe now um, it's a, has it returned to the point of not? Yeah, I could. I haven't. I don't play it much anymore. But but yeah, no. It's there's nothing. You know, it's 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 the interesting thing too. It's it's got some internal rhymes, but it is the only blank verse blues song I know. <laughs> but yeah, let, let me see. Seventy-five degrees and the breezes from the southwest. The humidity's low and so there's not a cloud in the sky. But you're always uncomfortable in Skokie. Dad's got a PhD. And mom's a Juris doctor. Sis graduated from a big school back in the East. They've forgotten how to read, cause life is so dumb in Skokie. Well, Waukegan is polluted, Wilmette is a curse. Kenilworth is racist, but Cicero is worse. Berwin is irrelevant, Volo is a bog. Niles ain't exactly your vital cog. Cal City is too fast, but number last is Skokie. A girl walks up to you, invites you back to her apartment. It's fully air-conditioned, she's got a jug of Morgan Davis wine. Five minutes and you're gone, cause you just can't get it on in Skokie. Skokie is the suburb that puts all the other suburbs to pride. There are railroad tracks in Skokie, but the whole town's on the other side. And I'm really proud to say I left the other day from Skokie, Illinois. Really proud to say I left the other day from Skokie. Are there, were there are there other times where you you think write something and you you might you think it's hilarious and it just falls flat or or the other way around where it just sort of like eh and then people really well, go that's, crazy about that's it. That's one of the amazing things really with doing humor is you'll have a song that's just killing people and then you'll go into a room and sing it and they're like wallpaper. You know, every crowd is completely different, and there are, in comedy, there are no guarantees. So I've, I've really never, and then I've had songs that I kind of liked, and I liked to play them, and so I kept them in the set, even though they weren't really perhaps my strongest material. And then on a given night, some, for some reason, a crowd would just latch onto it and really love that particular tune. So it's, it's, uh, it's not a science, it's an art, you know? It's, it's not predictable. 
Is it like, is there a certain person who gets it started or is it just some kind of energy of the crowd or what do you It, it really depends. It really, truly depends. Uh, every, every crowd is, is different. Um, certainly, if, if you have a fairly full room and you have a good laugher up front, mm -hmm. I mean, you're probably halfway to second base, you know. Uh, um, but, but the, you know, God, I can't, after doing this for a long, long time, I can't make any sweeping generalities about audiences. They're, everyone is absolutely different. And what's what's your approach when you're performing? Do you what what is the crowd to you when you're you know because it's a music that all music is reactive to some degree, but comedy especially. I, yeah. So so like what what are you thinking in terms of are you watching the audience uh, or well if I can see them you know and yeah. some it depends on the size of the room and in the larger rooms you can't see the audience. Uh -huh. You know when you go to a, like a big auditorium, the the act up there. He knows you're out there. You can feel the audience, and you can you can hear the audience, but you can't see them because the lights are too strong. And and so, but if it's a small enough club like this, and and I can see people, then, you know, I, you you have to overcome your shyness and work right to people, and and just put it to them and see if they like it or not. You know, it, it's. Uh, it's one of the ultimate confrontations, really. <laughs> and, uh, and you also have to have trust your material, you know, because if you're kind of doing it tentatively, then people kind of get a little, uh, you know, it sends the wrong message. Uh, so you have to trust the material and, and you know, after you get a couple of laughs a few times, it's not hard to trust the material, you know. And especially if what you're writing is timely um, it, and topical, it doesn't have to be the greatest comedy song you ever wrote because everybody understands that you're reacting to the news and just jumping on, on that particular topic because it's so timely. I wanted to ask just also though about when you can't see the crowd, is that harder or easier? Um, I think when you're first starting out, it's much harder. And then uh, you get used to it like anything else, you know. And, and then it's, you learn, I can't explain it, but you learn to feel the audience rather than look at them. Uh -huh. And you get really good at that. You can just kind of feel where they're at. And it's it you have it's kind of one of those you had to be there kind of things, but I've worked I think the biggest room I ever worked uh, biggest audiences were probably except for a couple festivals where I was working to eight or ten thousand people I I would say thirty five hundred four thousand people and and when you especially inside the uh, uh, outside's a little bit different but inside it's like. You just learn to sense where they are as, as a group. And so um, we've got we've got a good laugher here. We're just talking about how when the show has a good laugher, it's easy. And one of our favorite laughers has just walked in. So. Uh, 
Well, uh, let's let's go back a little bit then. To you grew growing up in you grew up in Skokie then, right? Is that, no, actually, no. I grew up all over the North Side and just lived in Skokie for about four or five years. Okay, but you went to high school there, you said. Uh, I went no? to high school okay. there. Yeah, uh, yeah. I started out in Uptown, lived in Saugenash for a while, uh, Skokie, and and then. Uh, most of my life, I think, uh, I've spent in Rogers Park, or right now I live a block south of Rogers Park in Edgewater. Mm -hmm. And, well, I, the reason I brought up was before the show, we were, we were talking about when you were first playing and you were seeing, like, a young Steve Goodman. and, and Oh, yeah. And uh, mm -hmm. just talk a little bit about kind of, I don't know, I guess the teenage folk scene in the well, you north have to suburbs, understand, I guess. When I was a teenager, folk music was pop music. Mm -hmm. You know, the, the number one album when I was uh, probably in seventh or eighth grade was the Kingston Trio. So, so and then later on, Peter, Paul, and Mary were, were at the top of the pop charts. You know, it's, it may be hard for younger people nowadays to understand that, that uh, the, the great folk scare was, you know, it was real big time show business. So the Hootenanny show was on in prime time. And, and had a big budget, you know, it was, uh, it was a big deal. So it wasn't like I was an avant-garde bohemian kid doing a beatnik thing by, by getting into folk music. That, some guys in the 50s could say that. But when I came up, it was like, you know, a lot of those folk scare bands were fraternity boys mm -hmm. who, who started working in their frats and then got lucky with a record, you know? Uh, it was a very mainstream thing to do. It wasn't, in, and it was a great way, I, I, you know, most guys go into playing music because it's a great way to, to meet uh, dates, you know? Uh, so. So when did you start performing live? I did my first paying gig at 13. It was a, it was a, um, a, a, like a summertime patio party out in Glenview or Wilmette. My, my best friend found the gig. I, I don't know. We got paid well. And, and, and we, he and I did this uh, uh, duo thing. You know, he played banjo and I played uh, tenor guitar. And we sang like Kings and Trio type stuff and, and, and got away with it. And, uh, and then uh, I did Scott Seller and Morton Grove a couple years later. Uh, after doing just kind of hootenannies and fun stuff like that, that party. Um, in the Fickle Pickle, I remember doing the Fickle Pickle uh, with my best friend. And Where was the Fickle Pickle? That's a good It name. was on the Neuror side, and, and it was a little uh, kind of basket house, coffee house. But every once in a while, they'd have a really good act. My dad came home one day and said, I saw a really good uh, uh, band tonight that plays your kind of music. And I said, uh, and my dad was like into, you know, uh, Tony Martin and uh, uh, Nat King Cole. You know, my, my dad was 40 years old when I, when I was adopted. So. so he was from that World War II generation. And, uh, and I said, really? He said, yeah. He said, they looked ridiculous. He said, it looked like two rabbis and a hooker. Uh, and uh, and uh, it was Peter, Paul, and Mary. He saw him at the Fickle Pickle for 50 cents. And uh, so, you know, 
but I, I was I just did that I, I started doing coffee houses and, and Scott Seller was in the basement of a greaser drive-in in Morton Grove and so upstairs they would be doing Corvette night and guys would be revving their 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 engines and we'd be down in the basement playing Kumbaya you know and it was fun it was fun and I started I did a gig with Fred Holstein there, and then two weeks later, Stevie Goodman did, did his first gig there. And then uh, Steve moved over to It's Here on Sheridan Road by the Granada Theater. And then I went over and did an open mic, and there was a guy there named Jim Boyles, who was part of the house act, the day jobbers. And he took a shine to what I was doing and persuaded the owner to hire me as as. Uh, uh, opening act and I started gigging and I was all of like 16 or something and uh, got drafted and would come back to town on leave and do it here uh, you know uh, with my quarter inch long army haircut and uh, and then I went to Northwestern and and gigged the whole time I was there and and then a uh, guy from Northwestern, Rich Marco, and I came downtown, and uh, Steve had been busy and, and was at the Earl of Old Town, and uh, pretty well established, and he got Earl to sit down and listen to us, and we did funny stuff, and Earl hired us, and we were off to the races. You have a song from that time you could play? Sure. I can do the, the very first song WFMT ever recorded of mine. What year was that? Uh, 1971. 47 years they've been playing this song on the Midnight Special. Uh, it's a song about the teeming trongs of ethnic Americans in Chicago. The thousands upon thousands of ethnic Americans living on a gigantic northwest side of Chicago. As you can see, we've, we've cleared a space for dancing here tonight. We'll make this the ladies' choice. Please all skate in one direction. I am hip, I got class and pride I run the only head shop on Chicago's northwest side But now I sing a different tune, something I've been true It's the waterbed was filled with glue Tonight that I got stuck with you, Polka I thought you was a hippie because you dressed that way I should have known those shopping bags sure gave you away but a Peter Max babushka misled me, dear, it's true. The waterbed was filled with glue tonight that I got stuck with you, Polka.
number 12, number 12, your pizza is ready. When I talk about that evening, other people scoff. About the time we got it on and could not get it off. I won't admit to being black, but boy, I sure am blue. The waterbed was filled with glue the night that I got stuck with yous. The waterbed was filled with glue the night that I got stuck with you, Polka. <laughs> thank you, thank you. That's, of course, from the wonderful, wonderful Myron Florin album, Bad Trip. <laughs> so, so you were, uh, what years were you in the Army then? Uh, 66 through 68. Okay. My, uh, my fellow citizens decided that I should go in the Army, and, and so I did. Oh, did. Did you serve overseas? or? Uh, no, actually, I got put into a... a an NSA-type unit in uh, Army Security Agency, and, and because we were illegal, according to the Geneva Conventions, uh, they could only take volunteers in <laughs> Vietnam. And 18 of us draftees got stuck in this unit, and they said, well, we need three volunteers to go to Vietnam. And as one, all 18 of us took one step backwards <laughs> and said, no way, dude, no way. <laughs> We stayed in Texas. I, I kept uh, I kept Central Texas uh, safe from Fidel Castro, uh, and uh, got to go down to Texas to, to Austin and hear uh, uh, Towns Van Zandt and some of the really good people, Alan Damron, and there was a, a coffee house down there called the Checkered Flag, and I wound up working a little bit there and, and getting to know Towns, and then he came up to the Earl to work. And, and uh, I got to open for him there too. So that was really wonderful, wonderful singer-songwriter. I imagine it's uh, kind of a different scene uh, down in Texas compared oh, to Chicago, right? I mean, I you know I don't I don't. It was it was really like being in a different country. You know, some of it was great if you were in uniform. You could stick your thumb out by the side of the road at three o'clock in the morning, and and a housewife would pull over and, and give you a ride. As long as you were in uniform, I can remember getting out of a car that was going to make a rest stop and starting to walk back to the interstate because I would hitch up to Memphis to see my girlfriend, and and cars would just start pulling off the highway to pick me up without e me even putting my thumb out. I mean, it was it's incredible. And up up north, they'd throw things at you if you were in uniform, you know, because uh, uh, everybody was so against the war. Uh, but down south, you were just treated like special special people. It was really interesting. And they they take you home to their mothers and make you eat awful pie, and look at at mom's 227 pictures of Jesus on the wall. You know, it was like. Uh, for a Jewish boy from Skokie, it was quite an education, you know. Uh, and uh, but but Austin, as today, was you know a, a hotbed of liberality and and uh, uh, really a fun place to be. There was kind of a psychedelic nightclub there. Uh, 
where all of the, you know a lot of the good bands would come in and play Grateful Dead type stuff, you know. And uh, I tried to get down to Austin on a regular basis. I, I enjoyed it down there. Do you, do you did you play differently to an Austin crowd than you would a Chicago crowd? Yeah, uh, I had to slow things down a little bit, and uh, definitely like. In Austin, it was the one place where I couldn't play the GI card. You know, Austin was against the war. Uh, the rest of Texas thought it was great. You know, but uh, uh, so my my uh, quarter-inch-long haircut uh, did not go over well in Austin, and I had to work pretty hard to get them at, at the, at the uh, checkered flag. But but I wound up doing okay with them. How about back in Chicago with your, you know, army haircut and so on? Well, you know, I think I was, I was working rooms in Chicago that I worked on a regular basis before I went in. So people knew me and they knew that this was just something I had to go through. So it was, it was really not a, not a big deal there. It was, was Chicago like less political than other cities might have been in terms of the music? No, Chicago no? has never ever been less political than anywhere. <laughs> I mean, politics, uh, you know, uh, I've, I can always go to politics in Chicago and get new material. You know, it's just uh, uh, the level, not just Chicago, the entire state of, of Illinois, you know, where our number one crop is corruption. Uh, <laughs> well, I'll, I'll let you go go from there. Some your pick, something along okay. those lines. Yeah, I could do that. Um, here's a political song about someone you may very well know. Uh, I don't. I don't need the entire orchestra for this. His name is Ram, it means lofty. Emmanuel means he is with God. Amen. His style is one part democratic and the other part Mossad. He's Rahm Emanuel, a pusher and a player. Rahm Emanuel, the random access mayor. Rahm Emanuel, an ayer and an ayer. Rahm Emanuel, the random access mayor. You can sing along on that part if you care to. Dad was born in Israel and served with the Irgun. Mommy ran a rock club back when hits still had a tune. They moved to Wilmette because the schools up there, they wowed them. But not into Kenilworth, they had not allowed them. Rahm Emanuel, a pusher and a player. Rahm Emanuel, the random access mayor. Rahm Emanuel, an ayer and a nayer. Rahm Emanuel, the random access mayor. 
Rom had lots of energy, Mom suggested dance. Little Rom took classes every time he got the chance. He became a Jewish ballet dancer of renown. He could dance on point, but for you, he'd come down. Rom Emanuel, a pusher and a player. Rom Emanuel, the random excess mayor. Rahm Emanuel, an ayer and a nayer. Rahm Emanuel, the random excess mayor. Ballet dancing doesn't pay too well for boys in chorus, even when your brother is the head of William Morris. Rahm knew how to dance around to pose and lots of tricks. He said to himself, I should be in politics. He joined the campaign, Billy Clinton, he was mountain. Rahm made donations flow just like a champagne fountain. As director of political affairs after election, he saw Bill's affairs were in a different direction. If he were Republican, ziga, 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 zen. All day long he'd yen and yin and yen. If he were Republican. But he's Rahm Emanuel, a pusher and a player. Rahm Emanuel, the random excess mayor. Rahm Emanuel, an ayer and a nayer. Rahm Emanuel, the random excess mayor. Rahm went on to Congress and the White House as a chief, helping the Obamas giving the Obamas some small measure of relief. Lining up the Democrats when they would start to mambo, pundits in the Capitol began to call him Rombo. When Richie Daly quit, Rom took up the bait. His enemies, they tried to keep him off the slate. They had big plans, but they all went kerflooey. Chicago likes its mayors tough, it don't like them chewy. Rahm Emanuel, a pusher and a player. Rahm Emanuel, the random excess mayor. Rahm Emanuel, an ayer and a nayer. Rahm Emanuel, the random excess mayor. Thank you. As far as I know, Rahm Emanuel is not in this bar. <laughs> but it, has it ever happened to you that you found the object, of, other than uh, the school teacher, of course, where you found the object of your humor was there I, in the audience? I got hired to do this big event for the independent precinct organizations that was held downtown in a big hotel ballroom. And I was the, they, it was their big fundraiser of the year, and I was the entertainment. And I had just written a song about Jim Thompson, Governor Thompson. Uh, and it was a parody of Big Bad John. You know, Big Bad Jim. He was a great big man. He stood six foot three. I don't remember the whole thing. It was years ago. Well, I started strumming the intro, and suddenly the follow spot guy there were actually a couple of them, you know, this is a big room. 
takes the spot off me and hits the governor coming in down the main aisle. And I looked at him and I said, oh, Governor Thompson, here's a song you may want to hear. And I did Big Jim to Governor Thompson. And the place just went nuts. And he was a total cool, good sport about it and everything. And, and uh, no, no gas, no nothing, you know, he just, he would, you know, you gotta have a pretty thick skin to be in that business. So he, he thought it was cool. He thought it was cool. He didn't have a problem with it whatsoever. But it couldn't have been better. I couldn't have hired him to make a better entrance. You know, it just made the show. <laughs> so, um, well, you come, when you come back from the army, are you playing more gigs and stuff like that here in Chicago? Well, I started doing it full time, and right. for the next 12 years, uh, I basically made my living as a folk singer. You know, it was a different time. I had like 18 rooms in Chicago that I could play in the Chicago area. And, uh, you, you know, there just aren't that many anymore. And, and they were all like, not basket houses, they were paying gigs. It was a nice, nice thing. And, uh, and then I got out on the road, thanks to Stevie and, and a couple friends, and started working the East Coast like Cellar Door. I worked a lot, 30 days a year. And I got to work with, you know, Ramblin' Jack Elliott and Odetta and uh, Tom Paxton and uh, uh, J uh, Roger McGuinn, who was, I think he was still, no, he was already Roger. He changed his name there. And uh, uh, lots, of, lots of different people. Uh, and some of the, uh, because I was funny, I could open for blues artists too. So I got to work, I must have done 40 shows with Luther Allison. I love working with Luther. And I got to work with Albert King. And I think the, the, my favorite gig of all time is I got to open for Howlin' Wolf. <laughs> Where was that? At a, at a hippie nightclub at Wrightwood and Lincoln that was called Alice's Revisited. And here was a man who the following weekend was going to be at the Albert Hall in London. But in Chicago, he had to work clubs because everybody just took the blues for granted. You know, so I got to work with him. He had great band, Eddie Davison, Detroit Jr., S.P. Leary. Um, and he was, it could not have been a nicer human being and, and really smart. I had a D28 Martin at the time. This is an old Washburn I'm playing tonight that I love. And he asked to see it. So, and, and Wolf told me that he had learned to play guitar from Charlie Patton. Right. And he knew, he died knowing about 100 Charlie Patton songs. Wow. There are, I think, 13 known Charlie Patton songs that Patton himself recorded. Or, and, and Wolf knew another 80. What a waste that those never got taken down. Those, Bob Kester would go up to him yeah. and say, come on, in the studio and sing some Charlie Patton songs. And Wolf with that voice would say, Bob, you got some money. <laughs> <laughs> and that was the end of that conversation. You know? uh, and, uh, but, but he asked to see this D28, and he played it, and he played it great. And, and he gave it back to me, and he said, well, you ought to keep that guitar because that... That's a Gene Autry guitar, you ought to keep it. Now I'm thinking when he says this, every time I saw Gene, he played a Gibson, a, a black Gibson guitar. But am I gonna correct Howlin' Wolf? No. Howlin' Wolf was about 6'6", and he weighed about 280 pounds. He looked like an NFL lineman. 
he, when you say a larger than life personality, this was a larger, and Albert was just as big, by the way. Uh, Albert King was humongous. So I'm not gonna correct Holland Wolf on any level whatsoever. I just said, oh yeah, well thanks, you know? So I'm in uh, the Old Town School talking to Ray Tate, the, who was the director of the school at that time. And he's got this D41 Martin. And, and I said, it's a beautiful guitar, you know. I, 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 he let me play it and everything. I said, it's great. He said, do you know why Martin made the D41? I said, no, Ray, why? He said, well, they made one for Gene Autry. They were trying to get him away from Gibsons. And so they created the D41 and they gave Gene Autry D41 number one. And I'm thinking, whoa, am I glad I kept my big mouth shut. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> But that's how smart Howlin' Wolf was. I mean, he was a very intelligent guy. So, you know, I was blessed. I, I, I really had, I got to meet so many wonderful musicians and, and it really just uh, led, led the life of Riley there for about 12 years until my, my ex got, got pregnant with our daughter. And then I thought, this is not a good line of work for being a dad. You know, because I was doing 75,000 miles a year on the road. And, you know, it was like I would describe my, my, my home life in general as a drive-by, you know, in those days. Oh, yeah, I, you know. And especially my, my ex was a, an editor. So she worked early in the morning until 5 o'clock. And early in the morning, I was just getting home from the Earl of Old Town, you know. So... I wouldn't see her for breakfast, and, and then by dinner time, I was probably in the car heading off to a gig. So we'd go, even when I wasn't on the road, we could go 10 days without seeing each other. You know, it was not a, not a good lifestyle for a married man. So I came in off the road and started doing journalism, and you know, still gigged locally, which I still do to this day, but uh, that was the end of the road. Well, let's let's do another tune and then we'll get back to talking about that. Okay, here's a here's a, another political song. This uh, this one's not about a person but about your tax dollars at work. It's a Cajun song. Cuz I only sing it occasionally. Down here on the bayou, we're eating soggy bread. The Mississippi River is 20 feet over our head. The levee has a gaping hole, it gave way yesterday. But we have had assurances that FEMA is on its way. Count on FEMA to quickly fix those leaks when it absolutely positively has to be there in nine weeks. In Oklahoma, the situation's rotten. A big tornado came through town, more twisted than Bin Laden. But FEMA will restore us. We know it's true because they sent us a postcard asking where Oklahoma was. Count on FEMA 
with the rescue hunts when it absolutely positively has to be there in 10 months. French-speaking people appreciate the FEMA soul. They gave us new trailers and a bit of spending dough. The people of Louisiana suffered such a terrible wreck. But FEMA dropped the equipment off up here in Quebec. Count on FEMA to man the barricades when it absolutely positively has to be there in decades. Sunny Puerto Rico, two hurricanes came through. After that, no power at all and very little food to chew. The feds knew in a moment just how to save the day. They called two guys in Montana to get things underway. Count on FEMA when the cacajuelos piled up. And everybody on the islands absolutely positively riled up. are always asking in the midst of their suffering what does FEMA stand for well pretty much anything designed to fight disaster in all kinds of weather it stands for forget emergency management altogether count on FEMA to be there in your strife time when it absolutely positively has to be there in your lifetime when you count on FEMA to serve your beck and call It's in many ways like not counting at all When When you were talking about doing gigs for, you know, playing uh, to open for Howlin' Wolf or Albert King and stuff, it's it's hard for me to imagine that, that sort of combination these days, like a, a folk singer and then kind of a more hardcore blues act. How? What are some ways that just the music industry has changed since the time where someone might be going out to you know and want to hear that sort of combination well, and a bar would be supporting even that? Even then, you know, it was it was a little unusual. Okay. Uh, uh, I think Bob uh, at, at Ratso's hired me to open for Albert King thinking that I would totally stiff and he wouldn't have to pay me. Uh, but I did, I did real well with Albert's crowd because, you know, I, I, I had some funny blues songs and, and I, I had some things that I could talk to, you know. I had a, I had a funny parody of uh, uh, Shaft, uh-huh. and I you know I would talk about how before I became the White Moses of Chicago soul, 
I, I learned to play the blues by leading around many of the famous blues singers who were living in Skokie at that time. People like Little Moshe Kuzovitsky and Hustlin' Joe Rosenblatt. The only known blues shofar player. Very interesting guy. You know, so people, you know, I, you can work it. You know, there's a way to, to get through. Uh, and, uh, but it is, it is a different thing when, like when you're saying where you could have 18 different rooms where you could kind of be rotating through. I mean, you, the, the crowd is probably different, I think. It's not. Oh, very. So, yeah, they're I mean, very different. What do you think contributes to that, just the change in? Um, I, people are so bombarded with information now, you know, and, you know, if you're spending $200 a month on cable, I think you, you feel like, well, maybe we should stay home and watch some because uh, we're paying so much money for this. Just the, the influx of home entertainment kind of yeah, keeps people from yeah, going Yeah, I think that, that had a lot to do with it. And then you had a very monolithic recording industry in those days. So there was a lot of heavy marketing of people. Uh-huh. Now everything's all over the map. Everything's a niche. Uh, there's really uh, no cohesion to the market. So as a result, there are no budgets to really push people. Mm-hmm. So, so, you know, it's more egalitarian and democratic, which is good. But it also makes running a venue much more difficult because you're not getting any support from a record company. Okay, right. So the venue's got to bring the people out on their own. Yeah, yeah. You know, you got to get the word out, and advertising is really expensive. Mm -hmm. And plus, most people who know how to run this kind of business don't know the first thing about advertising. Mm -hmm. You know, it's not their field of expertise. So, so as a result, there's that that, you know, that chasm that used to be filled by the record company mm-hmm. and and now you know it's to the point where even the big acts are not making their money off the records right but just putting out a record so they can go on tour and make the money working live right the record is just kind of a promotional thing at right. this point right a lot of them give it away now you know so it's a very different scene and and much, much harder for a person trying to run a small business like this to, to succeed, you know. I think that's why you've seen maybe the, the establishment of things like uh, Jimmy Buffett's chain of places, mm-hmm. you know, or the, the place that, on the near north side that does a lot of concert shows. Uh, uh, city winery? Yeah, they have city wineries all over the country, so they're able to arrange tours for people right? and get a better price by doing that. Mm-hmm. So Someone will play all the shows in that yeah. kind of circuit, right? Uh, and, and that, you know, that's, uh, I'm sure because the, they can't rely on record companies anymore yeah. to, to, to put a, advertising muscle into the, into the dates. So you, you stopped uh, touring in what year did you go off the road? My daughter was born in 81. Okay. So, so I came in off the road in 81. And uh, uh, I still went out once in a while if the money was good and everything. But, but, you know, I'd been doing it like every, you know, I can remember at one point working every night, seven nights a week for six months. Wow. 
And, how, how do you how do you keep doing comedy if, when you're been doing? Does it matter to be doing it? it? Is it harder or easier? It got to the point I can remember. I driving to there was a place called Harry Hopes in Cary, Illinois. It was a great place. It's an old uh, ski chalet, uh-huh. and these teachers from Cary High School got together and opened a club. And I saw Willie Dixon there with Lafayette League playing piano uh-huh. for him. A wonderful date. I, I, I didn't open that show, I just went out there because I wanted to see Willie Dixon. Um, but I worked with the Flying Burrito Brothers there. I worked with, uh, gosh, I'm trying to think, Kenny Rankin there. Uh, a lot of good people. So I have this gig, and you know this is right when I'm working, 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 working. And one of the things you want to do in comedy to stay fresh is have a couple of new tunes, you know, have a couple minutes of new material. So, it was right when uh, John Mitchell, uh, I can't remember if Nixon was already gone or not. I think he might have been already been gone, definitely gone, gone. And, and Ford must have been president. And John Mitchell was in big trouble. And, and he was in big trouble because his wife was blabbing to the press. And she, I think, tended to tipple a little bit and call up reporters. And Kenny Rogers had a song out called Ruby Don't Take Your Love to Town. And I'm driving up I-90 to go to Cary, because I lived uh, like Waveland and the, and the Inner Drive. And, and all of a sudden I got the idea, Martha, don't take your mouth to town. So I've got, I'm going down I-90 with a legal pad and a pen. It's like, like distracted driving to the nth degree. And I wrote the song on I-90 while I drove to the gig and did it on stage that night, you know, with the, with the words taped to the mic stand. And, and that's what you have to do, you know? I mean, it's just like uh, uh, when you you're working that much. You don't have any other much. time, right, yeah, to, to yeah. do it. Yeah. You know, and... Uh, but, but it was also fun to do mm. stuff like that. You know, it, it, for a while, uh, the Midnight Special had me doing a song a week. Wow. And uh, it was called The Midnight Minstrel. And then after I did it, uh, Tom Paxton took a turn doing it too. So I was in good company. And, and it was fun. And about, <clears throat> I would say, one out of six was a keeper. <laughs> you know, which is, I think, a pretty good... Mm-hmm percentage you know and and the others were funny for two weeks right you know and 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 they had to do with uh uh things like Mao Zedong passing away you know and uh, and I wrote a song called No More Mao that I don't don't ask me to sing it because I don't remember it but you know that was that kind of thing just purely topical uh-huh. stuff and it, and it was great fun and and if you do this long enough you know you get to the point where where you can kind of you know, just starts to come together. Make a song, uh-huh. you know, and 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 it's a, it's a challenge that I enjoyed. How long does it take you to do a song? Um, it it really probably floats around my head for who knows how long, uh, weeks maybe. But then all of a sudden the light bulb comes on, like the refrigerator door opens up and the light bulb comes on, and then it's usually 20 minutes. You just kind of, you just sort of know when it's time to write it down. You know, like I wanted to write a song about FEMA, 
but I couldn't figure out exactly like what, how to approach it, and I didn't want it to just be, you know, screw you, FEMA. I wanted it to be funny, mm -hmm. and <coughs> and something that that you know. Uh, I, I had a hunch that I could keep the song fresh because there's always going to be natural disasters. Like the Puerto Rico verse mm -hmm. was not in the original right. because it didn't happen yet, you know? So it's a song I can freshen up. And so I was trying, so I, I was going around, I should write a song about FEMA, I should write a song about FEMA, I should write a song. And, and I was getting nowhere. And then for some reason, I, I said to myself, how would Tom Paxton write a song about uh, FEMA? And boop. Door opened up and the light bulb went on, and I sat down and wrote the whole thing. <laughs> and it just, I just didn't know how to get into it until I thought of how Tom did his topical songs, and then that was the right way to go. So, so you know, I, I always consider that my Tom Paxton song. <laughs> <laughs> do we have a, let's do another tune? Yeah, sure. I'll, I'll let you pick. Okay, here's a song that Tom's late wife, Midge, loved. It's from a musical I've been working on uh, forever, for 30 years. Because it's, it's like a phony history of Broadway type thing. So I had to learn how to write every kind of show tune. And I'm not a, not a quick study some of the time. So uh, I think everybody here is old enough to know who Jacques Brel was. Um, this song is ostensibly about Jacques Brel, of course, who was a wonderful singer-songwriter and had a hit on Broadway with Jacques Brel as alive and well and living in, in Paris. And, uh, uh, but this song is really about resentment and envy. Jacques Brel and I we used to hang out in a tacky bar And we'd drink wine and he would joke and smoke his cheap cigar His smelly little smokes His dirty little jokes Jacques Brel and I We would laugh and fart and belch and fill our cups Sometimes he'd bore me with a song, and other times he'd just throw up, fall down on the ground. He never bought a round. But ah, the barmaid Sue, and the things that she could do with a plunger and some twine. She'd renounced her vows. We drank on the house, and now how I wish she were mine. Jacques Brel and I, we drank the wine, I ate the bottle and the cork. He got a phone call from his agent and moved off to New York while I sat on the pot. God, that hurt a lot. Jacques Brel and I, <laughs> we were as friendly 
as two old friends could be. You know, he wasn't really Flemish. He was from Newark, New Jersey. A secret shared by three. You, Jackie Brown. Are there certain topics which you avoid? Um, yeah, I mean, I think I think the, that violence towards women and children is not a funny topic. Um, I, you know, there's there's some hot button issues that. I think are important, but don't lend themselves to comedy. You know, that they're just too sensitive. That, you know, the, the whole, you know, pro-life, uh, 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 which is a horrible phrase, uh, but, you know, the whole abortion issue, um, I don't think there's a comedy song in there. Um, I, I don't think that, that gun ownership is very funny. Um, someone could probably write a very satirical dark song about it and, and get laughs. Um, but I tend, my, my satire tends to be, as I, especially as I get older, more um, uh, Horatian than Juvenalian. Uh, it, it's just, you know, it, um, but... Do you it's, feel like your, your humor was heavier when you were younger? Or? Oh, yeah. Uh -huh. Yeah, I think I would... Uh, um, and I think part of it was I had to work some fairly rowdy places. Uh -huh. And so I needed, at times, uh, some stuff that, uh, that would, you know, cut through the, the white noise and kind of shock people into, into focusing. Uh, uh, you know, I did a song about Jack Kevorkian that, that was pretty, you know, uh, cutting. And uh, I, I don't know it all. I don't want to try to sing it now. But, but you know, it was, it was definitely something that Tom Lear would have appreciated, you know. I mean, it, it had an edge to it. And it's not that I don't write th that way now, but I don't write near, uh, that way nearly as often. That's all, you know. Because it's because of the crowd setting, or just you personally just aren't in the mood for it. I, I think that I've I've added other tools to my toolbox. Number one, and I can kind of be more subtle with things, and also, I don't have to work real rowdy places anymore. Uh -huh. You know, and and uh, you know, I mean, sometimes if you're if you're opening for Luther Allison and and they've been drinking since six. Uh, you had to really kind of beat them over the head with something to, to get them to listen, and I I don't work those rooms anymore. So so I have the luxury of trying to be a little more subtle with what with what I'm writing. 
Well, as, as we kind of get towards the end of the interview, do you, do you make the songs to, to ever change people's minds? You make them to laugh? Or can music change people? Oh, yeah. I think music can definitely change people. I think uh, something as simple as uh, 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 come on, people, smile on your brother, everybody get together, you know? I mean, yeah, it sounds sappy, but I think that song changed a lot of people's lives, you know, the hippie national anthem. Uh, it, it was like um, that, it, it kind of like, yeah, the world isn't that way, but wouldn't it be nice if it were? You know, so it pointed people, and I think that's what the best songs do, is, is uh, you know, uh, one of my favorite examples of a well-written song is Pete Seeger's song, uh, Where Have All the Flowers Gone? Uh, which is, I guess it was originally by a German poet. And, and you know, just, he doesn't hit you over the head with with uh, uh, the the um, folly of war, he just tells you the story and lets you come to your own. Con he just points you. Mm -hmm. He just points you at the folly of war. Look at this. Does this make sense to you? Of course it doesn't. You know. But I think the best songs ask questions rather than provide answers. You know, they, they raise issues, they ask questions, and they very gently point you in a, in a good direction. Uh, that's just my two cents on it, you know? But... Uh, and now, where would you like to point us towards at the end of, to the end of this night? I have a blue song about technology. And since we were talking about Luther and Wolf and everything, I can do a blue song. Uh, I, I was thinking... I, I wrote this song because I was thinking to myself, if Robert Johnson and Tampa Red and, and all my favorite blues composers were alive today, what would they be writing about? You know, where, where would they be at with their music? And, uh, and this is what I came up with. I got the blues by email Now I don't know rhyme from ram Got the blues by email Now I don't know rhyme from ram That stuff my baby sent me Turned out to be just so much spam You know I met her on a chat net each message from her rang a bell Met her on a chat net Each message from her rang a bell Cause I had configured my Eudora To recognize her URL She sent me an attachment it was a picture of her with very little on She sent me an attachment It was a picture of her I double clicked on that attachment Took one look, my heart was gone 
my hard drive acted funny My screen began to blur and flash My hard drive acted funny And my screen began to blur and flash I had a virus inside my firewall I was headed for a crash Sit under a big old Bodhi tree like the Buddha long ago. Sit under a big old Bodhi tree like the Buddha long ago. I have to take all those attachments, somehow learn to let them go. I got the blues by email. Each time I read it, my heart sinks. I got the blues by email. Each time I read it, my heart sinks. She won't send me all her hot mail. She's developed other links. Thanks a lot for listening and coming out. Appreciate it. All right, everybody, give uh, Larry Rand a big hand and thank him a lot for coming by. Thank you. Thank you very much.